Well, each week we gather uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for His glory. And that is the name that we get to hear about. His name and His story and what He has done, His person and His work are not just preserved in traditions and in songs, although they are preserved somewhat there. They're also preserved in His Word that we might see objective truth. What about this man? And so we're in the Gospel of Mark, a, a gospel that's set out to show us the Son of God and what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Mark. In the New Testament, goes Matthew, then Mark, so just flip a few books over, and we are in Mark chapter 5 this morning. Mark chapter 5. And as we open his word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on this time. Father, thank you for the wonderful gathering of the saints. Thank you for your word that's in front of us. God, we just ask for your blessing, that you would equip us with this word and show us the greatness and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in it. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We didn't sing it this week, but O Holy Night captures something that I think is so vital for us to know, and it captures it poetically. It says, long laid the world in sin and error pining. It says that the world is weary. The world that we live in, that we dwell in, is a fallen place. It's full of sin. It's full of sickness. It's full of death. It's full of suffering. It truly is a weary place. It's a desperate world. And that's the world that Jesus enters into. That's the, the place that the Son of God comes to, a, a weary world that's, that's laid in sin and error pining. He steps into a place that's full of desperation. And Jesus' life and his ministry are full of encounters with the sick, with the possessed by maybe even a legion of demons, with those who have no other option. They've gone through all other option to be made better and have no place else to go. And Jesus runs into them often in his life and in his ministry. See, desperation and brokenness, they know no borders. I think that's clear for us in Mark chapter 5. Jesus, he, he is with a crowd in, in the beginning of, of Mark chapter 4. He's with a crowd on the sea, then he goes across the sea, and the crowd, they're pressing in to touch him because there's sickness. He goes across the sea, and on his way over there, they're, they're pressing in around him because there's a storm that they can't control. As he gets to the other side, he gets to a demoniac, a man who's been possessed by a legion of demons, and He cannot help himself out of the situation. Like there's desperation everywhere. And then you would think, well, he's at least in a Gentile area of the world. There's more desperation there. But he goes back to Galilee here in Mark chapter 5. And what does he see there? More desperation. Back and forth across the sea. And there's desperation on both sides. And Mark shows us in the middle of that, that, that there's this Jesus who has desperation all around him, but he's the one who has power and authority to break into a desperate world, to break into desperate cases and transform them by his greatness and power. Chapter 5 is linked together, I think, by desperation. All the way through, you see desperate cases. There's a man who has a legion of demons. Here's going to be a woman this morning that's, that's suffered for 12 years. There's, there's a daughter who's at the point of death. Desperation is all around. We pick up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, 
a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. So now he's back on the other side of the sea in Galilee, where the primarily we would have Jewish people, not Gentile people, and it's just as desperate there as it is on the other side. Perhaps he landed by Capernaum. This is kind of his base of operations. It's likely that that's where he went back to. And here he encounters a man who's called a, a ruler of the synagogue. Perhaps he's the ruler of the synagogue that Jesus cast a demon out in chapter 1, where Jesus was in the Capernaum synagogue, and a man with an unclean spirit came, and Jesus cast him out. Maybe that's the ruler that he encounters here. Maybe he's the ruler of another synagogue, where Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. He did that in a synagogue as well. Either way, there's a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus who meets Jesus. A synagogue ruler would have been one who was to give oversight to the synagogue, to the actual physical building, to maintenance and taking care of it, but to also work to arrange and conduct the the public worship. So assemble the scrolls and make sure you have everything in order so that people can come and worship. This person would have been a lay person, perhaps a Pharisee, but he would have been a person entrusted by the elders of that place. So in other words, here comes a a person who's well-respected by the community, well-respected by even the elders, the spiritual elders of that community as well. And here's what we know about well-respected men. They rarely come to another man and fall down at their feet. Jairus does, though. The ruler of the synagogue comes and he falls down at Jesus' feet. Perhaps he'd seen firsthand Jesus' miracles. Surely he's heard of what Jesus has done, But here we have, for the first time in Jairus' life, that he actually seeks Jesus out. You see, it's his desperation that is leading him to seek Jesus. His desperation leads him to seek a greater power and authority than what he knows, what he's heard of. See, sometimes God will use desperate circumstances to lead us to seek him. If you've been watching Christmas movies, you might have watched It's a Wonderful Life. And in that movie... George Bailey gets under a desperate situation, right? His, his uncle loses a large deposit that's needed or they could go to jail and face all sorts of consequences. He's desperate. So what does he do? He goes probably to the wrong place. He goes to Martini's bar. But he cries out to God there. I don't know if you remember, but you can just barely hear him. He kind of is covering his mouth and he prays to God. God, if you, if you can hear me, I, I really need you to get me out of this one. His desperation led him to do that. Let him to seek God. And here we have Jairus who's desperate. And it leads him to seek after Jesus. Maybe he's heard, maybe he's seen, but whatever. He knows that Jesus has got to be the one I've got to seek after. So he goes after him in his desperation. And we find out in verse 23 that he should be desperate. Verse 23, he says, He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. He's desperate, and he wants Jesus to come and and help this situation. Now, Mark is careful to point out Jairus' desperation. I think it's evident as he falls at his feet, but he doesn't just point out desperation. Look what Jairus also has here. He has confidence. He's looking at the Lord, and he says, just come and lay your hand on her. She's at the point of death. Another way of saying that, that's, that's a way of saying she's at death's door. She is hanging by a thread. She could pass any moment. He says, but if you come and lay your hands on her, she'll be made well. She'll live. 
Now, Jairus' faith here is not perfect faith. It may be just the faith of desperation. This is my last-ditch effort. This is my only hope. I'm going to give it a whirl. It's not perfect faith. It's not like the centurions. You know the centurion's faith? We see this in Matthew chapter 8. He says, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word, and they will, it will obey. <laughs> right? It will, it will be healed. It's not faith like that. It's come and lay your hands on her. It may be desperate faith, but it's faith that leads him to seeking Jesus nonetheless. It leads him to imploring him, falling down before him. And Jesus doesn't turn the man away. He doesn't say, well, you should have had faith like the centurion. You should have had a different kind of faith. Your faith should be stronger. He doesn't do that. He doesn't turn him away. He doesn't neglect him. Here's what Jesus does, verse 24. He went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. I mean, can you imagine not only Jairus' desperation, if your child was at the point of death, how much you would do or what you'd be willing to do. You'd probably do anything just to make them well. And here's what he's doing. I'm, I'm going to do anything I can. I'm going to fall down at Jesus' feet and beg him to come to my house that he might lay his hands on my daughter. Can you imagine the relief he would feel when Jesus then goes with him? Like, he's, he's coming with me. There's hope now. There's relief. Maybe something good will happen. Hope dawns in his desperate situation. Jesus goes with him. And Jairus, he has this urgency about him. And Jesus seems to respond in kind by going with him right away. And so this story is going to be moving towards resolution, right? We're going to see something happen quickly. But the story gets interrupted. And so Jairus, the crowd, and all of us who are peering into the story... We're going to have to wait on the resolution because instead of this desperate situation being fixed, uh, another desperate situation is going to be inserted into the middle of it. In a sense, Mark has created a desperation sandwich here. He's used sandwiches before. Here is a desperation sandwich. Desperation on one side, desperation on the other, desperation in the middle. They all need Jesus. And in verse 25, here's what interrupts the story. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Another desperate situation. And this woman's desperation is not a new development in her life. It's been 12 years in the making. But her particular ailment, or disease, Mark calls it, has many different elements of suffering to it. Not only has she endured it for 12 years, just physically she's had to endure this, but also she's had to endure other things. In Leviticus chapter 15, there are laws about being clean and unclean. And in Leviticus chapter 15, we read about a little bit more about this situation and how it would have been considered at the time. If you look to Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, it says, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes, and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening." I think that gives us a sense of what she would have been dealing with. She's unclean, and if she touches somebody, if she's around somebody, they're unclean too. So she's cut off from other people socially. 
She can't be around them. She can't go to the temple to worship because she's unclean. This has been the case for 12 years. She can't be in community. She's essentially in exile. She's on her own. In many ways, she's not too much unlike the demoniac that we saw across the sea. She's cut off. She's helpless. She can't help herself. She's desperate. Perhaps there's another social aspect to her specific disease. See, in John chapter 9, the disciples are walking with Jesus. They encounter a man who's blind from birth, and they ask a question that was a natural question of the time. Was it this man's sin or his parents that he was born blind? Of course, Jesus answers neither. But there was this common question that if you were living in a disease, especially if you'd had it for a while, then it was likely linked to some sort of sin in your life or sin of your parents, someone close to you. There's sin somewhere in there. Now think about the aspect with this woman as well. Not only could there be hints of, well, what have you done that that has caused you to suffer this for 12 years? But with this specific kind of disease, maybe there would have been specific kinds of attachments to it. Of what kind of sin have you done that for 12 years this is what the result is? All sorts of things could have been attached to this woman and she could have suffered greatly. And here she is desperate. And it's clear that she has tried to be rid of this. She wants to be free of this suffering, but it hasn't worked. If you look in verse 26, she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She tried doctors and their cures, and they left her worse off than when she started. She'd spent all of her money, and the problem remains. No change. And so with all the suffering in her life, all that she's having to endure, she's surely desperate for healing. I would try anything. I'll spend all my money. I'll go to any doctor. And she has, and it hasn't worked. But then word hits her ear. There's this one who goes around, verse 27, says that she'd heard reports about Jesus. Maybe she heard about Simon, Simon's mother-in-law, who lay ill with a fever, and Jesus came and made her well. Maybe she heard about that unclean leper that Jesus goes and touches, and he doesn't become unclean, the leper becomes clean. Maybe she heard about that amazing story and theatrical story of, of the paralytic being let down through the roof, and Jesus telling him to get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. Or maybe she'd heard about the man with the withered hand, how Jesus told him to stretch it out, and his hand was better. Could have been another story. She hears something about him, and it leads her to this. She heard reports and she, verse 27, came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now like Jairus, her desperation has led her to seeking after Jesus. She's got to find him and she even says, maybe if I touch his garments, that will be enough. Again, this is probably not perfect faith but it's leading her in the direction of Jesus. It's leading her to seek Jesus. So maybe the story of of Jesus touching and healing the, the, the leper convinced her that if she just could get that garment, then she'd be made well. And so in her desperation, in her pain, she reaches out and she touches Jesus' garment and something happens. Verse 29. 
Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately. This wasn't a coincidence that maybe some cures were still in her bloodstream that the doctors had given her that at this exact moment, they kicked in and changed things for her. It can't be explained away like that. She certainly knows this. It's that exact moment, immediately, what had tormented her for 12 years was cured. What no doctor could give healing for was healed. What no money could pay for was accomplished in the simple touch of Jesus' garment. She has been transformed by a touch. That's the power of the Son of God. And she knows her pain. Twelve years of it. She knows physically what's going on, and so she clearly recognizes when she moves from that to being made well. It's immediately obvious to her that she's been made well, and so she can't explain this away. The touch of the garment is what has healed her. It's Jesus' garment that has caused this healing and nothing else. Verse 30 goes on to say that Jesus perceives this. He, he knows power has gone out of him. And immediately he turns about in the crowd and says, Who's touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, Well, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Now, here's what the disciples ask some bad questions sometimes. This is probably a good one. Like, there's a big crowd around him, they're likely touching him often. And, and then he's looking around and said, who touched me? And they're like, come on, man. Who what are you talking about who touched you? Lots of people have touched you. Like, add that to the list. They're probably saying, add that to the list of crazy questions that Jesus has been asking us that we have no idea about. Here's another one. Like, I don't know. Lots of people touched you. Look around. There's a crowd about. But Jesus presses in further to know who touched him. Why? Why does he want to know? He knows power has gone out of him, but there's more to it than that. One author says it this way, and I think rightly, that he, Jesus, is not content to dispatch a miracle. He wants to encounter a person. Think about it. Jesus took on flesh. He came to dwell with us. He could have healed from a distance. He did it often. He could have stayed in heaven and healed this disease. He came to dwell with us. He came to encounter people. He wants to dwell among us. He wants to be like us so that he might rescue us. And he wants something better for this woman and for humanity than just their understanding that he is powerful. He doesn't want them to just know his raw power. He wants them to know who he is. He wants to encounter a person. He wants them to encounter him. He wants her to know not just his power, but who he is. And so he redirects the focus to where is this person who has touched me? He stops, he questions, and he looks to see who has done this thing. Verse 33 continues, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. The whole truth. Like Jairus, like the demoniac we saw last week, another person comes and throws herself down before Jesus. And she does it again with fear and trembling. Now, why the fear and trembling? She's just been healed. She should be feeling nothing but relief and joy. And yet she comes and throws herself down before Jesus in fear and trembling. What's going on? 
well, this woman has violated the law. She's violated Levitical code. She's just touched somebody as someone who's unclean. She's, she's committed a major cultural taboo. Touching a teacher as someone who's unclean, she's, she's got issues here. There's, there's a problem here. And now that she's been outed, now that Jesus is looking around for her, there's real trouble. Because now she's open to reproach, to reprimand from this person. But here's what she's met with. Verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Where we thought she could be open to reprimand and reproach, she's met with kindness and tenderness, tenderness from Jesus. Daughter, he says. Had he not stopped and looked for her, she would have never have heard those beautiful words from him. We would have never seen them recorded. But he stops. Who touched me? So that he could go to her and say, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He doesn't reproach her for her pursuits, reprimand her for her touch as someone who is unclean. He affirms her faith. She'd come in desperation, in uncleanness, in imperfection, and she's sent away with peace and healing. That's what Jesus does with people. And he's so gentle and kind in doing it. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 42, where it says that Jesus, he, he won't break a bruised reed. He won't quench a faintly burning wick. He's so gentle. He's so kind that he brings in and all these desperate people and he doesn't smash them. Now, we've been talking about Jesus unleashing kingdom authority and power. And some of us, when we hear about authority and power, we, we wither. Maybe because some of our past or the way we've experienced authority and power. But look at the authority and power of Jesus. It's never distant from his kindness, from his love, from his mercy. He's the best kind of authority and power there is. He's the model authority. And here he responds to someone who's desperate with kindness. He, he doesn't crush the weak. He doesn't snuff out the hope of the desperate. He came for people like that. He delicately handles the fragile. He softly assembles, reassembles the broken. He, he tenderly heals. And all for the sake of his purposes. That he might be seen as the Savior the true authority. You see, here we have a story of, of desperation and imperfection coming before Jesus, and he's so kind. And desperation and imperfection are no barrier to relationship with him. He calls her daughter, and he says, go in peace. That's what he reaches out to her and extends to her. And he, he knows, and we should know, that desperation and imperfection are never a barrier to relationship with Jesus. If we just look to him to be made well, they would never stand in the way. He can break through all of that tenderly and kindly with his power and authority. This woman shows us the way. She brings all of her desperation, all of her pain, all of her suffering to Jesus and throws them down before him for just the chance that she would be made well. And we can do the same. We can do this. What pain are you carrying around? What are you suffering from? Where are you desperate in your own life? Where are you needy? Where are you broken? 
You can bring it all to Jesus. You can come in desperation. You can come in pain. You can come in suffering. You can come in imperfection. And you can know that Jesus is so kind. He's so powerful. He's the one that can actually do something about it. If you've ever wondered in your desperation and your pain, is there any way that God could look to me and be kind? Is there any way that God could look to me and, and heal my broken situation? I think that we should say, look to this story. Look to the power and kindness of Jesus here. Now, he may use his power and kindness to heal us physically, and he may not. That's never guaranteed. But if we sincerely look to him, then we get to hear the same words that she heard. Go in peace. All those who come to him, he won't turn away. He'll receive them all if they would just look to him in their need and desperation. And that's what we're to do. We're to respond by just looking to him. The, the object of our faith, even if the strength of our faith isn't there, the object of our faith needs to be Jesus. And for those who are looking sincerely to that object will be received. Amen. He won't break a bruised reed, quench a smoldering flax. He'll be kind. His kindness is meant to make us look to him for more than just physical healing or worldly goods. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, into relationship with him. That's actually for our best. He's looking out for our good by being kind to us so that we would get what's best for us and what's actually needed, and that's relationship with him. That's what he affirms with this woman. That's what he's after with her. Notice that he draws that out in verse 34. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. It wasn't her touching of the garment that made her well. It wasn't her proximity to Jesus. There were lots of people that were touching Jesus. Lots of them were close to Jesus. It was her faith. Her simple trusting that this one can make me well that healed her. Jesus wants to make sure that she knows this. So she doesn't go away thinking that it's some superstitious trick that if I touch a garment, then that's what's going to heal me. It's the person of Jesus that heals. It's him she was looking to to heal. It's for her good and for the reader's good that he says, your faith has made you well. So that now we don't all have to think, well, if I'm going to be made well, then I'm going to need the garment of Jesus. Jesus was crucified. He is now raised. We are not going to find him anymore. We are not going to be able to come up to him and grab his garment. Now, there are a few garments that remain. I don't know if you've heard, but in, in 1357, a cloth claimed to be Jesus' burial shroud was put on exhibit in Turin. It's called the Shroud of Turin. Uh, there's a couple of pictures, and you'll, you'll get the sense of, of why this is such a, an interesting thing. Because they think that this was potentially the, the real shroud that Jesus was buried in. This was his burial cloth. And this is the picture of the cloth. It's essentially just a long rectangle that he would have laid in. But if you'll go to the next picture, I think I have another one up there as well. You'll, you'll see if you, I'm sure I probably just set many of you guys off on what you're going to do this afternoon. Don't do it right now, but check out the Shroud of Turin. But you could see this picture of Jesus on there. Uh, that's, on one side is what the shroud supposedly looks like. And on the other side, they've just kind of helped you a little bit see the details of what's going on there. So you can see like how intriguing this is. This looks like Jesus, and it looks like there's blood stains on this shroud. And so think of what attraction and pull that has. If, if I could just touch the, 
the, the very blood of Jesus. If I could go and stand in front of that shroud, maybe then I could be made well. But Jesus helps us here not be the kind of people that have to go to Turin to be healed. It's not the cloth that healed. This might be real, it might not be. And I don't think it matters one way or the, or the other. You can go to Turin and see it. I don't think it's going to help you one way or another. The, the one who helps is Jesus. And, and it's faith. We, we need to look to him in faith. We don't need to look to his cloth. We need to look to him. And all those who are desperate and in pain and suffering, what we don't need is Jesus' garment. What we do need is, is faith in him. So we need to look to him in our desperation. That's the response that Jesus wants from his people. He wants his people to respond to him in faith, to come to him in desperation and need and try to cling on to him. And so while this story is, is going on, we, we don't want to forget about the other. Right here we have this story of this woman and how Jesus sweetly and kindly heals her but this story to me is full of anxiety. But what about Jairus? Like I have a daughter and if my daughter was at the point of death and, and we were going that way and we had to stop for someone, like there would be some anxiety in me. He'd come in desperation. He'd come in urgency. His daughter was literally dying. She could have died at any moment. There wasn't a moment to spare. This woman's disease is not life-threatening. She's been dealing with this for 12 years. Let's move on. Just tell her to follow us, and you can deal with her later. Jesus needs to do some triage here. Like, which one is at the point of death? Let's, let's do this right, Jesus. And yet he stops, and he identifies the woman, and he speaks to her. See, hurting people were never an interruption to Jesus. They were never a barrier to accomplishing his means. Kids come to Jesus and the disciples are like, you need to go away. He doesn't have time. And he says, no, let him come. People are crying out to Jesus and he's like, let's make him be quiet. And Jesus says, no, let him come. There's a daughter who's about to die. Where's the woman? Who touched me? But his delay to speak to this woman is, is still unexplainable. It's frustrating. It's confounding. Why does he delay? Why not take care of this problem later? I mean, what is he doing here? This wouldn't be the only time that Jesus does this. You might remember the story in John chapter 11. Jesus has some really good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Lazarus is sick He's sick enough that they, they reach out to Jesus. It's, it's bad. And they say, you need to come. And here's what he did. He heard that Lazarus was ill, one of his good friends. And so he stays two days longer in the place where he was. That doesn't make any sense. And Jairus' story is similar to that. Jesus is requested. He delays, and it leads to Lazarus' death. Jesus is requested by Jairus. He delays, and here's what it leads to. Verse 35. While he was speaking, because he stopped to speak, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you imagine Jairus' hearing that? How crushing that would be for a father. Maybe how irate he'd be. 
how could you let this happen? I thought you were coming with me. His response isn't recorded. What's going on internally isn't written down for us. Now, maybe before he could do anything or say anything, Jesus steps in. Because Jesus hears this report too. He hears the news of his daughter, and his response to it is astounding. Verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. The word is that he overheard. Another way to translate it is that he ignored it. And I think both fit the context well. He overhears and ignores what is being said because he knows something better. So he just hears it and ignores it and he looks to the man and he gives him some short reassuring words, some words of encouragement when his world is crashing down around him because his daughter has died. Don't fear, only believe. Wait, hold on, trust me. Jesus says, don't fear, only believe. And I think what he's doing in those short words is hinting at the reason he delayed. Hinting at his goal in the situation. Verse 37, it says that he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they'd entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, was sleeping and they laughed at him. They laughed at him. In this culture, when someone would die, they'd bring in professional mourners and wailers to open up the lament, to give full expression to the lament. So there would be mourning and wailing and flutes playing and the lament would be on. And that's likely the scene that Jesus steps into. The lamentations for this little girl are, are ongoing. And these people are, are not fools. Like they know death. They know that this little girl has stopped breathing. Her heart is not beating. There are no brain waves coming. She's dead. They know this. And so when Jesus comes and says, why are you weeping? She's just asleep. They laugh at him. Probably not a good idea to laugh at Jesus. But it seems understandable. How in the world? You haven't even been here. How can you even say that? We know that her heart's not beating. It's not the first time we've seen death. So they laugh at him. Perhaps up until that point, people thought, well, Jesus can do miracles. He could heal some extreme cases, but she just died. And with that, hope dies. No one who's dead can be made well, but they come, Jesus comes, and they laugh. I think it's interesting that demons don't ever laugh at Jesus. They fall down in fear before him and shriek out. They, they don't laugh. The people here, they, they laugh. They don't know Jesus as well as the demons. And Jesus is not sidetracked. He's not derailed by their derision. He presses on. Verse 40 continues, but he put them all outside. And he took the child's father and the mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, those are the little, literal words, words of Jesus. Those are the words he spoke over her. 
little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus unleashes kingdom power and authority with two words. Talitha Kumi. Little girl, arise. Little girl or honey, sweetie. That's the translation there. Speaks to her with such sweet, tender language. And he speaks into death. And even in death, he's obeyed. He speaks right into it. And it obeys him. And he lifts her out of death resuscitates her. Her heart starts beating again. She starts breathing again. She gets up and walks around and she's hungry. She needs something to eat. Jesus does this by his power. And the room is stunned. And they should be. They're amazed at the miracle that Jesus had done. Now maybe when they saw this, they would have had the same question that the disciples had when Jesus told the storm to be quiet. You remember what they said in chapter 4, verse 41? They said, uh, who is this that can do this kind of stuff? Who can speak to a storm and make it be quiet? Who can speak down into death and make it obey him? Who is this? And that's Mark's goal, to show us who this is. He's the son of God. He has a power and authority from heaven as the Son of God. And we only read this story rightly if we have the same astonishment and amazement that they had who were in the room. Not just at the miracle itself, but at the Son of God, at the one who would come and do such a thing. And with that perspective, then I think we get to look back and think rightly about Jesus' timing here and why he delays. See, Jesus' delay would have been frustrating and confounding I think I would have been irate. Why are you stopping for her? Let's get moving. My daughter is about to die. Why does Jesus stop? It seemed foolish. It seemed unwarranted. I read someone said it seems like malpractice. You're not doing this right. It's not how it's supposed to be. You can deal with her any day. My daughter is dying. But Jesus does it for good. He does it for good for the woman.
all to lead us to what he told this man. Don't fear, church, only believe. We're not promised that we won't suffer or have pain or go through hard things for long periods of time. We're not promised that we won't face death, but as one pastor said, if our physician is almighty, our disease cannot be desperate. Our physician is almighty. He just showed it to us so clearly. Our disease is no longer desperate. Even if it's death, and that disease is plaguing us all, our disease of death is not desperate because Jesus defeated even that. Not only does he say it here, he goes to the grave himself. And a couple days later, he gets up and walks away from it. And so now with confidence in the Son of God, we can say, as one author said so well, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Church, don't fear. Just believe. Let's bow in prayer. just want to lead us through a uh, response to what we just heard. So if you'll pray with me. God, help us see our desperation. Help us see the desperate condition of sin that we all have, Lord. Father, we read in the passage today that a desperate woman heard about the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And so she came to him in hope. Father, may we be a people who speak of your works in such a way that we instill that same hope in those who are desperate and don't know you. That through faith, God, they may know your kindness.
And Father, we pray that you break our hearts for desperate people. May we follow Christ and that rather than running from those desperate for your grace, Lord, may we be a people who pursue them as you did with gospel action and gospel truth. Lord, we know that if there was a time of year that most clearly demonstrates your kindness and love towards those who don't know you, it is now that time. Lord, we've heard in Advent, we've heard in the Gospel of Mark of your great love and your great kindness towards a world that's in desperate need of you. And yet, Lord, so often this time of year, we... We let those truths just fly by us. God, forgive us where we sin and that we have so much and that because we live in a culture that is so rich, Father, we allow the worries of the world that have been imposed on this season consume us. We're so preoccupied with who we should buy for and, and who's going to buy for us and where we're going to travel and how long we're going to stay and it's just easy to forget Lord that this season is about your love for a broken fallen desperate world and it's about what you did because of it there is no time that rivals what happened in that manger only that time when you returned father we just thank you so much that you've shown us your grace that you've shown us our desperation help us be a people who desperately love you and who are faithful to share the miraculous work that you've done in our hearts and delivering us lord from the judgment we so deserve it's in christ's name we pray amen Let's take this meal together. <clears throat>